we live in an unprecedented era of tennis genius. Oh, that is unbelievable. And it just keeps on getting better. Oh, what a scorching return. Analysis, debate, and exclusive interviews. Can you believe it? This is the Tennis Weekly Podcast with Adam Bates. It's just days to go until the tennis begins at the Olympic Games, but the defending gold medalist Rafael Nadal isn't going to be involved. His tendonitis has given an opportunity to his close friend Mark Lopez, who we'll be hearing from. Another man who'll go to the Games with a smile on his face is Andy Roddick, who's won his second title in three tournaments. And we speak to the big boss at Wimbledon after they caused a reshuffle in the tennis calendar. Tennis Weekly is a Sky Sports News Radio podcast. All the way from California, it's commentator and former pro Doug Adler with us on this occasion to discuss, first of all, the big news of the past week, which is that the singles winner at the Beijing Olympics, Rafael Nadal, will take no part in London. And just for us, Doug, the fans, that's a big blow, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite a shocker, really, because when you think of Rafa Nadal, you think of one of the greatest, if not the greatest, competitor in tennis ever. And for him to pull out of something where he's the defending gold medalist, uh, Adam, it's not too far off from when he won Wimbledon a few years ago and wasn't able to come back the next year to defend. So you've got to really think something's very, very serious up in the Nadal camp. You know, I know we've seen a lot of what Tony has had to say about not being ready, having to deal with all the injuries, the knee injuries and such, but... Adam, I really think it's significantly greater than just a physical situation. What do you mean? I, I, I personally think, you know, when the chips are down, when it's all on the line, Nadal is one of the all-time greats that you would look to for any singular, single particular match like that of, a, let's say, a Jimmy Connors. The thing that I worry about, the French Open was not that long ago, and Nadal won that tournament so convincingly didn't seem to have any physical problems. Then you have the two weeks in between. He goes to Wimbledon, loses to Rasal. And, you know, that blow to me is as much psychological as anything. So you're saying that perhaps his body hasn't changed that much from before. It's just that mentally he's not as steely because of what happened against Rasal. That's what I really feel. I think the way you just said that, that's how I feel. And obviously, that's just a subjective point of view, you know. And and by the way, a lot of friends of mine and as well as myself, you know, we're talking about Nadal's loss. And a lot of us were wondering, how would he come into the Olympics? Would he be strong? Would he show? Would he play? Regardless of the knees. You have to remember when he lost to Rasal, I don't think anybody thought it was he lost because of knee problems. He lost that match because he was outplayed that particular day. Now, but you remember what and, he said in the press conference afterwards where he said that he, well, not excuses, but he had reasons for the defeat, but he didn't want to say them now because it would look bad on him. Don't you think yeah. that was what he was alluding to there, the fact that he did have dodgy knees? Sure, absolutely. But I think the other thing you have to look at, number one, is... The quality, of his, the quality of his opponent that particular day. And also that when Nadal has lost over the past few years, 
there always does seem to be some type of physical situation. Mm. So it's not to downplay that at all. I'm sure that's quite the way it is. But I think Nadal took a huge psychological blow in that Wimbledon loss and is not yet ready to return. Very interesting. Well, he must have been pretty destroyed, though, in terms of his mental state, because Uncle Tony said it's the most pain he's had to endure mentally in his career pulling out of the Olympics, um, which must be a lot, because when you think back to when he thought his career might be over as early as 2005 with his knee problems, and then he was, um, you know, after the 2007 final, when he lost it from a winning position against Federer, he was left on the floor of the shower at Wimbledon naked, crying his eyes out and then as you've already mentioned 2009 Wimbledon when he couldn't play there and perhaps the most interesting thing that Tony said was that it was probably his last chance to play at an Olympic Games and Rafa himself has said that he will try to play in Brazil but to be honest I'm not too surprised to hear that from Tony are you? No I'm not surprised to hear it it is disappointing the other thing that Tony said Adam and they always bring this up and you have to look at it you have to consider it, Nadal being one of the best players in the world, one of the greats of all time. They talk about the schedule yep. all the time. That's just what I was going to ask you. What are your thoughts then? Tell us. Well, does he have a it's, point? A, it's really a tough one. You know, it's a double-edged sword. For the guys that are struggling, for the guys that aren't making that kind of money, they want to play as much as they possibly can. They want there to be as many tournaments as can be allowed or played on, you know, on the schedule. Uh, when you talk about the likes of Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, you're talking about a different animal. You're talking about guys who have the right to pick and choose. But you also have the right to plan your schedule, how you're going to play. And I think Nadal may have overdone it this year. Well, frankly, Doug, the day that these top players decide not to play exhibitions, that is the day when I'll start listening to their complaints that they're playing too much. How can they, on the one hand, take in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars from playing one-off events and then say we're playing too much tennis when they are playing events they don't have to? Well, that's a great point you make. And by the way, that is one of the single most important viable reasons why the ATP has not taken their side more seriously really is Mm -hmm. and adam the sad thing about the exos very rarely do those matches really come down to two guys playing like it's a grand slam final it's about Mm -hmm. entertainment it's about cash and there's only a few guys that have the profile big enough to be able to to fit the bill so i agree with your point I think it's time to stop complaining about the schedule. I think it's time to just uh, really take a look inside at what you're doing because Nadal has struggled for years with the knees. But when things are going well, Adam, you don't hear too much about it, do you? Absolutely. Well, it was a bittersweet moment for Rafa's close friend and regular doubles partner, Mark Lopez, who replaces him in the doubles after he won the Rome Masters a couple of months ago. Mark was on course for making the cut for the Olympics in his own right, but then he had to pull out of the following tournaments after his father died soon after he returned home from Italy. That meant he didn't have enough ranking points to make the grade, yet, with the withdrawal of the world number three, Mark Lopez received the late call, and he told me just how it felt when he received the news he was going to his first ever Olympic Games. 
Sí, la verdad es que cuando me enteré eh, que fue antes de ayer. The truth is, uh, when I found out on Thursday night, well, it was sad news uh, because I'm taking Rafa's place. But uh, on the other hand, I was delighted to be able to take part in an unforgettable experience. I just had feelings of immense joy in my career. I never expected to take part in the Olympics. The truth is, Spain has really strong tennis players, so I never expected to play a part. I will try to enjoy it as much as possible, and I'm really looking forward to it. disfrutarlo al máximo y muy ilusionado. Have you spoken to Rafa? Yes, uh, I've spoken with Rafa. Um, he's upset uh, because obviously uh, he has really looking forward to the games. But unfortunately, uh, his knee injury has stopped him. And uh, well, uh, he's my friend, so he was happy uh, because I'm going to compete. So I was just trying to cheer him up and tell him uh, I hope he recovers quickly. And the emotions that you felt over the past few days could barely have been more contrasting to what you were going through only a couple of months ago. Yes, after winning the Rome Masters, uh, I went back home and uh, my dad was suffering with an illness in his lungs and sadly um, he died. It was a huge blow, uh, but that's the way life is sometimes. And well, uh, now I'm delighted to be going to London, and from now on, I'm I'm going to do my best in in honor of my father. Had you contemplated, Mark, how difficult it'd be to watch your friends playing from the settee? No, yo tenía asumido que. No, uh, I really accepted I wasn't going. Uh, I understood it perfectly because there are players that are better than me. But uh, I have to take advantage of this experience and uh, live it to the maximum. But if I hadn't have gone, I would have enjoyed watching my teammates from the sofa, as you say, and hoping for the best for them, uh, winning as many medals as possible. Haven't you already arranged a break abroad? Yes, uh, I already uh, booked my holidays for the next couple of weeks. Where are you going? To Sardinia in Italy with my girlfriend, but not now. Uh, but uh, I'm happy not to go. <laughs> yes, and there too, because she understands how important this is for me and uh, she's excited to come and watch. And you and Marcel Granollers have been playing really well. You've reached four finals this year and won the Rome Masters. How confident are you that you can win a medal? Well, uh, I've been playing really well with Marcel. Uh, we have been good friends for a long time and we have performed well, especially on clay, uh, but not on grass. It's not really our best surface. Uh, we lost in the first round at Wimbledon to the eventual champions. But I think if we are focused and uh, if we train all this week, we will be able to adapt and uh, I think we will have the chance to play well and win as many matches as possible. And on top of all that, you'll be celebrating your 30th birthday during the Games. What a dream. Yeah, it's one of the best presents I could have wished for. It will be my birthday and I will find myself at the Olympic Games. It's the, the best gift a person could be given and I'm overjoyed that this has happened to me. And thank you to Ángel Matías Gómez for being the English voice of Mark López. 
This is the Tennis Weekly Podcast with Adam Bates. The winner of the doubles with Marcel Granollers in Gestad over the weekend. And in trying to track him down over the last few days, everybody said fortune couldn't have shone on a nicer bloke. So best of luck to him over the next few weeks. But apparently they had a bit of a nightmare journey getting to the uh, Olympic Village. They arrived at about half past ten in the centre of London. And they didn't get to their destination elsewhere in London, not far away, until half past three in the morning. I know this is something you want to talk about, Doug, and this is um, the fact that so many tennis players are representing their country in the opening ceremony. There is no fewer than eight nations selecting tennis players as their flag bearers altogether. They are Marcus Bagdatis for Cyprus, Novak Djokovic for Serbia, Max Mirny for Belarus and not Azarenka, uh, Agnieszka Radovanska for Poland, Oria Takao for Romania, Stanislas Wawrinka for Switzerland, Maria Sharapova for Russia, and who's the other one, Doug? Uh, did you say Novak Djokovic? I did. No, I'm, I'm kind of uh, teasing you. <laughs> Stephanie Vogt of Liechtenstein. Oh, Steph- I'm sorry, Stephanie Vogt from Vogt, Liechtenstein. Yes. That's the one. And they um, don't expect great things from her, but what an honor anyway, huh? Well, absolutely. But I, you know, I don't mean to belittle them, but I can't imagine they've got too many other sporting stars that they could have picked from, to right, be honest. Right, right. But uh, I think the amazing thing for me is you mentioned eight countries. And, and, you know, obviously we're very familiar with the majority of these names. Stephanie Vogt just trying to make a name for herself. But isn't that incredible that, you know, you go back, the most tennis ever had up until this year was just four. Yeah. It's doubled. Yo, this is it. There were only two in Beijing, weren't there? Yeah. Two in Beijing. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, prior to that, maybe four. Yeah, that's uh, right. In, in uh, Athens. Athens, yeah. And, and I believe Maria Sharapova is the first woman ever selected by Russia to uh, wave the flag. Is that correct? Yes, it is. I was reading uh, an interview with another top Russian sportsman who wasn't too happy about the fact that a woman was selected. Why do you think there has been such a proliferation of tennis players representing their country in in the opening ceremony? I believe the reason for that is is, uh, in Europe, in Asia, South America, Latin America, places outside of the United States... Tennis has become one of those sort of jewels, one of those diamond jewels that allows young people to get out. It allows them to make a name for themselves. It allows individuals a chance to really rise to the top. And, you know, when you're desperate, when, when you need it really badly, that's when you can soar to great heights. And struggles with the Americans as of the last 10, 15 years is that there's so many other things you can do if tennis isn't working out. Yeah, just going back to the Olympics, it actually means a lot more to the players as well, doesn't it? Because I've just been reading, for example, that Bernard Tomic has said that the Olympics mean more to him than the slams do. You wouldn't have heard of that a decade ago from anybody. You know, that's a question that we always sort of toil with during our World Feed broadcast with Robbie Koenig and Jason Goodall, Nick Lester, to name a couple. You know, the question is, well, we have two questions that we go over a couple times. One of them is, who's going to have a longer career between Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer? Meaning, who's going to retire first? Yes. <laughs> so that's the one thing that we go back and forth. And with. your answer and is? The other is... Come on, you've got to give us the answer. You can't tease us like that. <laughs> oh, 
you know, I, everybody has a different opinion about that. Uh, I, I personally think Federer's got a great chance, even though he's significantly older. Yep. I, re I really do, because he doesn't get injured. And, and the other thing, getting back to the Olympics, as, as you asked, <laughs> it's just such a great opportunity for young people. But if I had to pick between a gold medal in the Olympics or winning a Grand Slam, I would hands down take, take the slam. Yep. I don't think there's anything bigger in tennis than winning Wimbledon. To me, that is the height. And even though the Olympics is only once every four years, I understand that, but it's about the Olympic experience. And to me, as valid as that is, as important as that is, I still find it to be somewhere in the realm of Davis Cup. And if you were, say, somebody like Djokovic, would you trade in one of your Australian Open titles for an Olympic singles gold medal? Okay, now that's a really good question because now you're asking for a trade from a guy who's got more than one. Yes. Now in that case, if you're actually allowed to do so and you could actually go win the Olympics, I don't think you ever want to trade anything that you've won because that belittles it, that takes away its importance, but that would give further, yeah, I'd give further consideration to that. That might be valid. I'd certainly consider it. And I know to somebody like a Roger Federer. I know to somebody like a Novak Djokovic. I know that that would complete their trophy case as well as their legacy. But Adam, look, at sometimes you can't have everything. You have to be grateful for what you have. Right then, let's go for predictions, Doug. Who's going to win in the, first of all, the men's draw, the singles? Well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with the great one one more time. I'm going to go with Roger Federer. I like the fact that he gets to go back to a place that he just won. Uh, I think he is the best grass court player in the world. They say in gambling terms, you know, don't go against the trend. The trend is your friend. Well, right now, the trend is world number one, Roger Federer. I'm not going to buck that trend. I'm going to go with Novak Djokovic. Okay. Now, that might be foolish because I went with him for the last two majors as well and look what happened. But... I think motivation is an issue for him, given that he had such an incredible year last year that this year he's not been able to get as fired up because it's not new to him anymore, the success. But with this, he does get fired up about being patriotic. It's what started his whole great run when he won the Davis Cup with Serbia. So that is going to inspire him, I think. When he plays his best, I believe at the moment that he is still better than any other tennis player in the world. Okay, wait, I just want to respond to that. Go on. Is that okay? Of course. I don't disagree with anything that you just said, but I'd like to add something to it. Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons that Djokovic has not been the same guy this year as he was last year is, number one, there, there really is no way to continue at the level that he put on the map last year. That was superhero stuff. Planet to himself. So to replicate that or duplicate that would be virtually impossible. But because of that, of what he did in 2011, it creates the expectation. It creates this guy who now people think or should keep up that level and win all those tournaments. And when that happens, Djokovic doesn't come into 2012 like he did 2011. He came into 2011 with no one expecting that from him. And then he just kept winning and winning 
what beat Nadal seven consecutive finals. Yeah. You know, it, to me, the aura of the the additional burden of expectation that's what creates huge pressure. And I think one of the reasons that we haven't seen the same Djokovic this year is not only because, as you might say or think, that he hasn't been as motivated, but I think the pressure that he has felt has been enormous to have to duplicate what he did. Those are the same pressures that Federer had to deal with in 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, four years in a row, the greatest player on the planet. For Djokovic, I think it was it's asking too much. And he's a human being after all. He's human. It's just that extra burden of expectation that will make it more difficult for him to win and play his best. But do you think he'll get silver? I think he's going to get a medal. How's that? Yeah, I'll settle for that. What about the women? Who's going to be a women's gold medalist? Well, you know, if I give you the same theory about uh, the trend is your friend, you really, it's hard to go against Maria Sharapova. Uh, she seems to be inspired by, by the pressure. But I'd like to throw someone else in there, Serena Williams. You've got two women that are not only amazing athletes, amazing tennis players, but mentally so tough, so tough when the chips are down. I've got to agree with you. There's no way you can look past Serena Williams for me either. It's the big thing missing from her collection of trophies and medals as well, the singles at the Olympics. So, yeah, got to go with Serena Williams. And, I, and I'm not going to – you know what? I mean, I'm going to sit on the fence. I'm not really going to – if they were to meet each other uh, and, and you put a gun to my head and said pick one, okay, if you put a gun to my head, I'll take Serena for one reason. Best serve in the game, even if she's not playing – Great tennis. If she's a little nervous, which she would be, the serve can get her out of jail. So I would pick her, give her a slight edge. Right, we'll move on then. Let's have a look at the ATP tournaments that have uh, been going on over the last week. Andy Roddick beating John Isner and then Jill Muller in the final of Atlanta for his second title in his last three tournaments. He was supposed to be finished, Doug. What's gone so right? Well, we know that he too has a great serve. We know too that he has a wonderful work ethic. It's just about getting match wins, and uh, that's the one commodity. John Barrett, former great British broadcaster who I had the opportunity to work with and learn from, would say that confidence is the one commodity that professional athletes would pay anything for if you could bottle it and sell it. I think when you get back to American soil for Roddick, you put him on hard courts, you just, you know, he just starts to really believe that he's the daddy. Yep, and his recent success and the confidence you talk about is perhaps why we can also expect him to go far at the Olympics alongside John Isner in the doubles. Now, as far as the other tournaments last week are concerned, Juan Monaco, he's moved up inside the uh, top 10 now after beating Tommy Haas to win the German Open. Now you talk about Juan Monaco. Oh, my God. Talk about fit. Talk about determination. Uh, Monaco, to me, is an overachiever right now. He's been out there a long time, but he has, throughout periods of, of his career, at times pulled off wins on surfaces other than clay courts. He's played well in Cincinnati on occasion. He has been able to get the big win here or there you know, on hard courts. 
people think of him strictly as a dirt baller. Not the case. Yeah, he hasn't performed particularly well on grass, but he does play well on other surfaces. Let's look at the other ATP final that took place over the weekend, and that was Janko Tipsarovic, who looked on course to beat Thomas Bellucci after taking the first set, but then the Brazilian hit back to win it, um, but only after a hilarious double fault. I don't know if you saw this, Doug, at the end of the first set tiebreak. He went 6-1 ahead in the tiebreak, then lost seven points in a row, culminating in this double fault. First one, standard fault. Then the second one, he inexplicably served it into the opposite corner of the opposite service box. So he was serving to the ad court, but then he hit it into the very opposite corner in the juice court service box. I mean, it was, it was just bizarre. But the fact he managed to come back from that and actually put all that behind him and come back to take it 6-4, 6-2, I believe it was, in the other sets, um, it shows good character. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that's obviously tension. I think that Bellucci is actually underachieved. I've watched him play, and I think mentally he could become much tougher. So for him to recover after losing all those consecutive points in the tiebreak is just a wonderful thing to see happen, and particularly when you see who he did it against. Janko Tipsarevich, that is one tough cookie. The women's side of things in Carlsbad, it was the top two seeds against each other, with Sabulkova coming out on top, winning her second career title without dropping a set over the entire week, and she beat Marion Bartley in the final. But I don't think the French woman really deserved to win after she served almost... 50 double faults, I think it was, and only six aces over the entire week. Yeah, I, I just am shocked. I'm stunned. Uh, Bartoli, I, I watched her serve a bunch of doubles at the French Open this year. And to me, she's one of those players that just doesn't give anything away. She's just so dogged and you know, really gets the most out of her game. But the serve has become very psychological. And Sybil Kova, you know, she is five foot nothing. She's what? Barely five four. She's lucky. Yep. And she just, you know, watched her play. I watched her beat Azarenka at the French. She's a little ball of dynamite, and you cannot give her free points. And when you're double faulting like that, you're just looking for trouble. Yeah. And it's a good little story for the Slovak as well, because she just got rid of her negative ex-coach. That's what she called him anyway, Zelko Krajan. And then she promoted her hitting partner, Peter Mikluciak, to be her new coach, and then she goes and wins a tournament, so good on her. Then the other WTA title went to Polona Herzog, who defended her Bullstad title, which was quite surprising, but she was helped by the fact that Sarah Arani withdrew with a shoulder problem earlier in the week, and she overcame Matilda Hansen in the final, despite losing the first set, 6-love. Did you ever win a match, Doug, when you lost the first set, 6-love? Uh, would you believe me if I told you I won a a bunch of matches losing the first set six love. How does that happen? I just can't imagine it. How how on earth are you so bad in the first set that you lose it to love and then you well, win the match? So I used to think, okay, if I lose a set six love, I know I played horrible tennis. I know I can't play any worse or do any worse. I also know that I'm going to get better. And at the same time, it's possible that I've given my opponent a false sense of security because how are they going to do better than that? Right. They have to win love and love. And how many matches do you see? You can go back at them and look at a lot of matches where players win set six love and they lose that match. Guillermo Correa will tell you all about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right, well, we shouldn't get caught up in the Olympics hoopla and forget the fact that there are still ATP and WTA tournaments going on this week. And to tell us what they are, here's Tom Cross. 
With the top stars of the ATP World Tour playing at the Olympics in London, there are two events this week in LA and Kitzbühel, Austria. There are eight Americans in the draw with Sam Querrey, the highest ranked American of them, seeded number two for this event, Benoit Pair of France at the top seed, Leonardo Mayo of Argentina seeded number three, and Nicolas Mahou seeded four. Over in Austria in Kitzbühel, Philipp Kohlschreiber is the top seed, Florian Mayer of Germany is in seeded number two, Robin Haas of Holland seeded number three, and Albert Ramos seeded number four. Only one American playing in this tournament with a very European cast. Philipp Kohlschreiber is my pick. Tennis Weekly is a Sky Sports News Radio podcast. Right, for a long time, there have been many in and around the tennis world grumbling about such a short two-week turnaround between Roland Garros and Wimbledon. And the players have complained of fatigue and a lack of preparation time, while others have wanted to see a longer grass court season altogether. Well, their demands have been answered, as it's been announced that from 2015, the championships will start a week later, so there'll be a three-week gap between the two majors. I spoke to the chairman of the All England Lawn Tennis Club, Philip Brook, on why they decided to make this change. The reasons really are fundamentally to do with the players. Roland Garros, great tournament, finishes, and, and then literally you know, two weeks later, uh, our championship starts. And I think we've held the view for a, for a while that really that is not enough time really for the players to, to rest and recuperate properly and, and to prepare for Wimbledon. You've alluded to it there. How long have you actually seriously been working towards this? It's been something that's been discussed on and off for a very long time. I mean, probably 15 or 20 years, I would, oh, right. I would suggest. But I think on previous occasions, there have just been some good reasons that have, that have meant it was difficult to achieve at the time. Um, and uh, anyway, we, we had a, another good look at it earlier this year and felt it was workable. And I have to say, you know, the players have been supportive. And there's been a lot of interest, actually, from tournaments that are directly impacted by the by the change and as we speak there's quite a lot of interest from some of those clay court tournaments in Europe in coming ahead of Wimbledon and converting you know the, the tournament to grass oh really yes yes so I think that the, the picture that we hope to see by 2015 is that uh, we hope that by 2015 you know, Roland Garros will finish and there will be three weeks of grass court tennis. Sure. Now, you've been the chairman now for getting on for nearly two years, I believe. Now, I imagine you're happy with how smoothly it's been going and the feedback you've had. Uh, <laughs> I think on the whole, um, I'm reasonably happy with things, thank you. I've done two championships now and, and um, they both seem to have gone pretty well. Um, this year was an interesting year in that we had quite a lot of very showery weather. And so our roof was used a lot. So in fact, used on nine days out of 13. Um, but I think this year we were saved by having some absolutely fantastic tennis. You've got this Wimbledon 2020 project, don't you? Uh, that's there to decide how you can improve the championships and maintain its status as the best tennis tournament in the world. So what are the significant alterations or developments you're looking to implement? So a little bit early to, to comment specifically on that. What we started six months ago was the planning phase of the Wimbledon 2020 project, and we and we anticipated a year of planning. We're about halfway through, and uh, what that what the plan is intended to do is two things. Firstly, to keep Wimbledon as the finest stage in world tennis, uh, and secondly, to help us address the understandable expectations of many of our stakeholders. We hope to announce 
at the end of this year what we intend to do and, and that plan will take us through the, the next sort of 10 or 15 years. And can we be pretty sure though that at some stage we will have a roof over court one? I think uh, at this stage, at this stage, no decisions have been taken. I think to take a look at a roof on number one court is certainly something that we will give serious consideration to. I'm thinking back to the Andy Murray match, especially the one against Marcos Bagdatis that finished at two minutes past eleven. Yeah, are you looking at that, thinking, well, that was a hit, people enjoyed it, it was gripping, plenty of people watching on the TV as well. Is that something you're going to consider having regular nighttime tennis, whether it's raining or not? No, not really. I mean, the, the, that particular day, as it turned out, we scheduled three matches, which is our normal approach. And those three matches were all very long matches. And it just turned out that, that we, were, we were lucky enough to be able to use the roof, and particularly you know, use the lights. But it isn't our intention to, to schedule uh, nighttime tennis at Wimbledon sort of on a, on a day-by-day basis. We played more tennis on centre court this year uh, than ever. And, uh, and that's something that we need to just be, be mindful of. Uh, we just can't, unlike with a hard court, we just can't keep on putting more and more tennis on the court because we will ruin the surface. Well, now looking at the All England Lawn Tennis Club, it's being transformed, ready for the Olympic Games. And given <laughs> the appearance of the venue as a whole has been largely the same for the last 23 years that you've been a member there, it must feel pretty strange for you looking at it now. Uh, it, it, it's a bit different, it, it's, but it, it is. I think the thing I would say about uh, you know, Olympic tennis is that um, you know Wimbledon Club was took a decision back in 2004, I think it was, that we wanted to do our part to help bring uh, the Olympic Games to London in 2012. And uh, I think we're all very happy that the Games are in London and that Wimbledon hopefully has played a small part in, in, bringing, in bringing all that uh, excitement that's about to start uh, next week. So it's pretty clear already from the, the way that the grounds are being dressed that, that the Olympic tennis will be different. And I think that's probably a good thing for the Olympic tennis, it's probably a good thing for our championships as well, so that people understand that this is a different event, but that it's being held on, on our grounds. This is the Tennis Weekly Podcast with Adam Bates. Philip Brook, the chairman of the All England Lawn Tennis Club. And first of all, Doug, regarding the extra week's gap, there's no real reason that's not positive news, is there? No, it's only, it's only positive, really. It just seems like it's as much as it's nice to go from one major to another, it just just doesn't seem quite natural to play all that clay court tennis for so many weeks and then have such a short um, amount of time preparation for Wimbledon. Some could argue the, the single biggest of all the majors. And I also think it means that the likes of Queens, the other tournaments, they're going to attract the bigger name players a little bit more because Djokovic didn't play Queens this year. And what do you make of the fact, Doug, that most of the tennis players are going to be staying in Wimbledon Village rather than at the Olympic Village? Because that's where all the fun is, isn't it? Yeah, I, I actually, I, I'm a little surprised by it. Wimbledon Village is an incredible place. The environment's perfect. But when you talk about the Olympics, you're talking about for some a once in a lifetime opportunity it's it's a once every four year deal but we know about all the traffic issues right we know about all of the the things that can affect getting ready for your event getting ready for your venue so as much that must be a very tearing thing 
for for those about having to make that choice. Where should I stay? Where do I stay? I want to be part of the Olympic experience, but I also want to maximize my ability to perform at the highest level. And unfortunately for the tennis players, with all the commuting and all the traffic, it creates that type of issue. Well, I was just reminded actually by looking on the Tennis Space website that it was the Athletes Village in Sydney where Roger Federer and his now wife Mirka shared their first kiss. So they're missing out on quite a lot potentially. Any <laughs> any other good Athletes Village stories that you've heard, Doug? Uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> or any that we can broadcast anyway. I haven't anyway. heard that one. That's <laughs> funny. Uh, I guess they're going to just have to look for um, their significant others to give them that kiss at Wimbledon. Not such a bad place to get it. No, I, I'd <laughs> I think the other thing, Adam, too, is even though they're not staying in the Olympic Village, tennis players are very, very superstitious. They're very cautious about, you know, their own program. They're creatures of habit. They do the same thing all the time, what time they get up, what time they eat, what time they practice. And it's quite robotic. And that's why when you have rain and you have other situations that curtail that, you never quite know who's going to respond to that you know, better than the, the other person. But I think because they're part of the tennis venue, when the tennis is over or when it shows that they have time, they're going to be able to make their way into the village. They're going to be able to see all that. They're going to be able to go to the other events, the other venues. I think that's the way they can probably rationalize it. The last topic I'd like to raise is the fact that Roger Federer is top of the list of the highest international sports earners in the world, raking in over $50 million last year, according to Sports Illustrated. Um, I could help him spend that if he likes. That leaves him top of the list as well for a fourth year running. It's quite remarkable. In your day, Doug, were the top players just as interested in big business? Well, I was sort of transitional, interesting, because my day was, was McEnroe, and prior to that was Connors. Uh, I, I did leave out Borg, so I named two Americans, but let's throw Borg in there. Uh, I think, you know, Connors was very, very driven financially, materialistically. Prior to Connors, it wasn't as much about that. It, it wasn't there. The money wasn't there. Right after Connors, you'd say McEnroe era with Borg. That's when, you know, Gerolitis, these guys were as much celebrities as anything and the money was just driven to new heights. Uh, tennis players have always been spurned on by making money. We talked about doing exhibitions. They are entertainers, and they like being paid handsomely, but nothing at all close to what we've seen over the last few years in an era dominated by the likes of Federer and Nadal. Nothing remotely close to that going back into the late 70s throughout the early 80s. Yeah, I wonder how much of all that money was down to exhibitions. But Nadal and Sharapova are the only other tennis players in the top 20 earners. And in fact, Sharapova is the only woman. Uh, no Novak Djokovic there, which underlines the point that it's not all down to how successful you are on court. So now we've come to the part of Tennis Weekly, Doug, where you have to name a player of the week. Wow. That's tough, huh? Well, you know what? I'm not going to go with the obvious. I'm not going to go with Roddick. And the reason I'm not going to go with him is, although I'm very proud of him and I'm sure he's happy, I think more importantly than that, and even Juan Monaco, I think the big guy for me is Thomas Bellucci. That's, wow. that's a win 
that I would not have figured he was going to have over Tipsarevich. Tipsarevich is, you know, having the best year of his life. Ranking supports that. Uh, he's on top of the world as far as he's concerned, getting ready for the Olympics. And for Bellucci, as well as he's played, he's been an inconsistent performer against the top players. And to be able to get into that final and struggle in that tiebreak, like you mentioned, and still be able to come away with the victory, I think it's going to just lift him to new heights. That's us done for another week on Tennis Weekly. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at SSN Radio. I'm on there too, but Doug isn't. Are you, Doug? Why is that? Uh, I just need to keep my focus, Adam. Well, thanks to those that have left such positive reviews on iTunes. Please keep them coming, and we'd love it if you hit the subscribe button as well. But be back for the release of next week's edition when the tennis will be underway at the Olympic Games. Goodbye. The Tennis Weekly Podcast. The greatest, unquestionably, he was tonight. At skysports.com slash radio and on iTunes. And the world's best is the best on a night to remember in New York. Tennis Weekly is a Sky Sports News Radio podcast.